0: Well, Happy New Year, I don't know if I still like to say that, you know, Happy New Year, whatever, I'm just, just going to say it and roll with it, thanks guys, thanks for, thanks for backing me on that Tom, appreciate that man, good to have you here for uh, 2020, um, uh, we are in one of my favorite books the Bible, I just live in the Psalms, Psalms is just my jam, I love it, it's uh, all about emotions and feelings, that's my thing. <laughs> Just, yeah, anyway, that's, that's what I love. So we're going to hear from God in my favorite book. It's a great psalm. I just feel like I could read this psalm and step back and just sit down and say, just read that and read it for yourself. That's so cool. So we're going to look at Psalm 73. We're going to pray to God right now and just ask that he would, he would speak to us where we're at, uh, wherever we're, what we're thinking or feeling. I truly believe when we sit at God's feet and listen that he will speak and it's his words are what we need to hear right now. So I'm going to pray to that end. So let's talk to God together. Uh, Lord, we want to thank you so much uh, for who you are, uh, for your word, and that you speak. And Lord, as we come now to your word again, we ask that you would um, make this truth of Psalm 73 just come to life. uh, That you would speak it deep into the the recesses of our soul. That we would hear of your goodness, of your faithfulness, of your all-satisfying nature. And that we would look to you and feel refreshed that we would get perspective about uh, who we are, about the world we live in, about a year ahead, and that we would be people who just want to enjoy you forever. We want to thank you for the book of Psalms and the gift that it is. It's it's your gift to us and how people experience you in this world. And so, Lord, we want to pray that we would hear this clearly um, and you would help us to sit at your feet. And thank you so much for your word, Lord. Amen. Um, you know, sometimes in life, what we need is, a, I think, is a good dose of perspective to look up and see the bigger picture. And, uh, and at times, if you don't get that perspective, it can be dangerous. Uh, most times around summer in Australia, you see sort of these pictures come out, right? This was taken just a few months ago. Uh, this was at a, a beach called uh, Barara Beach on the south coast. Uh, this is a 2.5-metre great white shark cruising underneath of surfers who are oblivious to what is going on around them. Um, you know, my, my family and I were just at this beach maybe three months ago um, looking uh, at, uh, at this same beach and luckily we didn't see a shark or get eaten, but uh, you can see these surfers have no idea what's going on. Uh, they, they haven't got the full picture, they haven't got perspective of, uh, of what's around them and it can be dangerous and life-threatening. Um, sorry if I'm scared you from going to the beach in the summertime. It's fine. I'm sure it's safe. Just go in. You'll be fine. You'll be all good. Don't worry about it. Uh, but seeing the bigger picture is often necessary if we're going to avoid danger. But it can be hard to get perspective, especially when things don't go as we'd hoped, and especially when emotions get involved. And I often see this in my kids and sadly myself sometimes. Uh, for example, my kids have been on school holidays, and so we try and do a lot of activities with them, take them to fun places like you know Sky Zone, which I love, by the way. I just fall in love with Sky Zone, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> we'll talk later. Uh, um, we're taking the Sky Zone to the movies. They stay up late. Uh, they've had Christmas and got presents, food, all that sort of stuff. We went away on holidays just last week, camping with friends, and they had the best time. I think they live a pretty good life, my kids. Anyway, um, uh, one day we are at the beach and uh, they loved the beach and then we came home and then uh, had some nice lunch and then we played a board game as a family. That's always going to be dangerous for us yeah. as, as a family. We sit on the table and then straight away fight breaks out of the rules of the game, about what rules they're playing and then we're playing fight breaks out and it's just like life and death yelling at each other at this game. One of my kids, after this great day we've had at the beach together, had food, had fun, one of my kids gets up in tears, walks out of the room and says, this is the worst day of my life. <laughs> and you, I just think, the worst day of your life? Wow, that is so full on. Either they've had the best life ever, and that, that's just a dip in their great life up here, with a, I don't think that's it. I, but I think, more they've lost perspective on what is going on and what life is about. And, and they've gone too caught up to that one moment, and they flipped out and said, the worst day of their life. And I'm sure, you can know, we like this sometimes, right? Like, I have this tendency in me, you know, if my, if my favorite sporting team loses, I'm depressed for a day, or if a friend doesn't return a text or a call immediately, then you think they don't like me and I'm done with them, or, uh, you know, you have a bad day at work and you get home and you start looking at seek trying to find the, jo- the best next job you can find <laughs> because it's the worst job in the world and no one likes me at work. But we can lose perspective when our emotion, emotions get involved. And uh, we... we But in saying that, life can be hard. When we we start looking around and comparing ourselves to others, life can be really hard. And we know that social media plays in that comparison thing. But when we look around and see what others have and we don't, we can feel like we're missing out. You know, think about jobs or careers or opportunities or relationships or houses or whatever it is. When we start looking around, we think, well, they have it and I don't. Why don't I have that? Surely I deserve what they have at least. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you can start, uh, start to ask questions of God. So, God, why, why do I don't have what, what do they have? And, and where are you, God? Why, why are you let, let, ripping me off or not giving me what I think I deserve? I'm trying to follow you, yet but you make it hard for me. And I think deep down, uh, as followers of Jesus, we can expect that things should go well for us. Well, at least as good as those who don't follow Him. That's probably the underlying assumption that we have. If God loves me, why doesn't he make my life a little easier? Or at least like everybody else's. Surely if I'm following him and he's he's in control and sovereign, then he should make my life be blessed. Um, That's what we think. And it's hard not to feel this way when we look around. It's hard not to feel envious or a little ripped off or disappointed in God. This is the context in which we have this psalm, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph where he speaks into how he's feeling when he looks around at the world around him and what he's not getting. And we're going to see him express how he feels to God, and then we see what God's answer is. And I think it's going to really help us as we think about our own lives and the character of God and the satisfaction we find in him. So we're going to look at that. It's a long psalm, but uh, we're going to try and navigate this with sort of three observations that I've got here on the screen behind me. And that's looking sideways, looking up, and looking forward. Um, as I said, this is some Asaph. Most of the psalms are written by David, this is written by Asaph. Now Asaph, you can read about him in One Chronicles sixteen, and he would have been from the Levi tribe, and he was a great poet and writer, and also a musician, and may would have been like a worship leader in the gatherings. That's who he is. But let's look at what he writes, looking sideways. I'm going to read to you the first 15, sixteen sentences. And I want you to try to hear his emotion, try to hear what he's experiencing and what he's trying to portray to God. I'll read it for you and listen in. It says this. He says, Truly God is good to, good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, and they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, and lo- uh, uh, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his, uh, his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they're always increasing in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. We have here Asaph just crying out to God, saying, God, I'm looking around, and I'm feeling ripped off by you. I'm feeling let down by you. And he starts in sentence one, saying, Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. But then he says, But as for me, so it's almost like, Israel, you're good to Israel, but as for me, my foot had almost stumbled, my, my steps had almost slipped. He'd almost given up on God, he says. He's almost saying to God, I'm done, I can no longer handle this. Sentence three tells us why. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This God-inspired worship leader was ready to walk away from God, to give up on him, when he looked sideways and when he he was envious. And he saw those who didn't follow God, and they were prospering. Their life was easy. They were getting great things. And he wasn't. Asaph would look at their lifestyles, their clothing, the houses they lived in, the company they kept, and he thought to himself, hey, I'm a follower of God. I don't get drunk. I'm honest with my money. I go to church. I even lead worship. I maintain all this discipline, but for what? I'm missing out. They get all the stuff I get nothing. And it's it's not hard for us to resonate with Asaph, is it? He's looking sideways, comparing and wanting and desiring what everyone else had and he didn't. He's feeling ripped off by God. And he says in sentence four, they are healthy. Sentence five, they have no trouble. Sentence six, they boast about how great they are and how easy life is. Said in 7 to 10, they are callous, they sin against you, God, and they get away with it. They're violent, they're affluent, and they lay, lay claim to heaven. And then people follow them and think they're great. He even says they mock you, God, saying, how can, how can God know he's a, he isn't even there? They're carefree, and they're doing well in life from a world perspective. And is saying, this is not cool. I'm, I, I'm not up for this. And somebody's saying to God, do something. Do something about it. This is how he's feeling. In 13 and 14, he says, he's feeling ripped off. He says, Surely in vain, for no reason I've kept my heart pure. Surely in vain I've followed you. He's saying, what do I get out of following you, God? I've missed out rather than gaining. When I look sideways, I don't get anything. And he's fed up, and he's angry with God, and he's disillusioned. He says, and then he says in Sentence 16, as he steps back, he tries to, in his own wisdom, figure out what is going on. His words are, it became oppressive to me. It became overwhelming to me. And he couldn't work out why they're prospering and he isn't when he worships the one true God. And it made him want to give up on being a follower of God himself. I know, uh, I know about you, but I, I hate injustice. I think we all do. We all hate feeling like we've been ripped off personally, and especially when we feel like we deserve better. Um, You can ask my wife. I have a strong sense of what is right and wrong, and one of my ongoing frustrations in my life of justice and right and wrong is the parking in my street. (laughs) Please pray for my soul over this. Uh, It gets me upset. In my street where I live down in Roselle, um, the the parking in my street, it's a wide street, so it's different from Roselle, and it's untimed and unmetered. And so people park in my you can park in my street as long as you want. But please don't, cuz it's my street. Stay away from my street. Anyway, uh, people <laughs> park in my street then catch a bus to work all day. Just park there. Or they park in my street and they go on holidays. That gets me. Like please don't do that. Anyway, they park in my and it's, and it's horrible. But what gets me even more upset is when my neighbors who have driveways park in the street. Thank you. I can get over here. So annoying, right? I get yo, yeah, feel me. Me and ASAP. We're just feeling this from God, right? People park. And they have driveways and they don't use their driveway. Instead, they take the, the, the spots up in the street. Injustice. And uh, I get so frustrated. And I park. I have to park my car in a different suburb and then walk to my house. And I come in and saying, Katie, we need to call the council. We need to get this. We need to get this street meted. What can we do? These people with their driveways. And I think um, deep down, it's like I feel like I deserve a driveway. I deserve better. I deserve what everyone else has. And I don't deserve to have to walk hundreds of meters to my house because I can't get to park anywhere. And I expect when I look around everyone else has that, then why shouldn't I have that? I deserve that. This is what Asaph looks around. He, he looks around he compares and he thinks of what he deserves and what he's not getting. And the wicked prospering. He's like, I can't work this out. Why the wicked prospering? And, I, and I'm not. And as, as I said, I don't think it's a huge stretch for us to feel like Asaph, to look around and to see what we're missing out on. And jobs or career or relationship with, with, with anyone we want to or, or homes or fun or whatever it is. We can look around and think, oh, why can't I? Why do they prosper and I don't? You know, the sad thing is that, that we can feel like this and And Asaph says his foot almost slipped, but I've sadly seen people's feet who have slipped. People just sit here. As they look around at the world and they think it's not worth it, and they give in, and they think I've followed God in vain, and they think no more and walk away. And it's a battle for each of us, and it's real. But there's a a change in the psalm, and it comes around uh, sentences 16 and 17, and it stops Asaph's foot from slipping. And he, what he does is he looks up. He looks up. And look at this. He gets perspective. Sentences 16 and 17. He says this. But when, I thought, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, here it is, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. When Asaph tried to work out in his own thinking, his own wisdom... What is going on? He couldn't do it. It was a wearisome task, he said. It was oppressive to him. But all that changed when he met God, and he met with God. It's not until he comes and meets with these people that he gets perspective and life makes sense for him. Were all his questions answered? No way, they wouldn't have been. But what happened in the sanctuary that changed him was he, bring, he brought his confusion under the truth of God. As long as Asaph tried to work it out in his own strength, and his own wisdom, he could not figure it out. All he could see was everyone else's immediate pleasure, and he was not getting that. But when he sat under God, the truth of God became clear to him. Perspective was given to him. He sees life from God's infinite perspective. And you can sense Asaph's relief. The tone changes in the psalm here. Everything changes. And his focus no longer is his problems or his envy. His focus is now God. And there he's reminded of God's attributes, his character and his power. He's reminded of the satisfaction that is found in God alone. And coming to God, Asaph can both see both God's judgment against sin, but also his solution to the offer to sinners. And eternity breaks into Asaph's temporal perspective. Eternity comes into his temporal perspective. And when he gets perspective, he sees things very differently. Look at 17 to 19. It says this. He says, Then I discern their end. Truly, you set them in simply places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terrors. Asaph sees their prosperity is only temporary. They enjoy their sin for a time, perhaps in human perspective, for their lifetime. But from eternity's perspective, it is a quick right at the bottom. And Asaph realises that the things of this world and desires pass away really quickly. And God is the one in control of their destiny, not them. And their end will be terrible. And now, armed with a new perspective about God and this world and eternity, he sees himself very differently and the world he lives in very differently. When Asaph looked sideways, all he could see was what he was missing out on. But when he looked up, he could see things from an eternal perspective and then what he had in God and his foot didn't slip. And then as he has his perspective, he then confesses what he was feeling. Look at sentences sentence 21-22. It says this. When my soul was embittered against you, God, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, he says. As his emotions settle, he meets with God. He can see what God is like. He can see eternity in perspective, and he, he get this sense of shame. He was just simply focusing on the things that are here and now that will vanish like vapor. And he realizes now his perspective he's not missing out on anything. And that true satisfaction is found in an eternal God. It reminds me of that great famous quote from C.S. Lewis's famous um, uh, essay that he wrote, The, uh, the, the weight, of, weight of Glory. It says this. He says, We are half-hearted creatures. Fooling about now here on earth with drink and sex and ambition, "'when infinite joy is offered us, "'like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum "'because we cannot imagine what is meant by by the offer of a holiday at the sea. "'We are far too easily pleased.'" This is what Asaph realises. The first 16 sentences, he realised that he was just wanting mud pies. When a holiday by the sea was offered, offered, found in God. And this changed when he meets with God. I'm sure you've heard of um, the phrase, the grass is always greener. I'm definitely a grass is always greener guy. Uh, It affects me quite a bit. Whenever we go out, especially for somewhere to eat, so breakfast or lunch or dinner, I'm the sort of guy who just regrets the choice they've made on the menu. I sit down very quickly and I think, I just want to choose my food, but I'll go through every single menu item to make sure that I get the best meal. Because my regret is when I sit there and someone orders a meal, I'm like, I wanted that. And then my meal is just like, oh, what's this? This is yuck. Like, you know, I just just can't enjoy it because I need to have the best meal at the table. And I do it quite quickly because I'm, I'm sitting down and I'm not there for a haircut. I'm there for a meal. So let's choose this and get on with it. But I often rush too quickly and make the wrong choice. And then I'm like, oh, the grass is greener. I should have got the burger. Oh, I should have got that. And then my meal is like, and I can't enjoy it. And I feel trapped by my own grass is greener attitude. And it comes to the same thing when I'm buying something new. I research for ages, trying the best product. I get it. Regret kicks in. I should have got that one. I should have got this one. And no matter what I would have got, I have this thing of the grass is greener. I should have got what I didn't get. I don't enjoy what I do have. And it's a horrible way to live feeling like you've missed out. Plagued by comparison, plagued by comparing, plagued by looking sideways. And I think we all have this in us. It doesn't take long for us to have anything amazing and then compare ourselves. Or compare what we don't have or what we missed out on. Thinking that'd be more satisfying, more fulfilling. What or what I didn't have. And especially, I think, being followers of Jesus in a culture that is not following Jesus. We can feel like this. Is it worth it? Like Asaph, we wonder, is it worth it? Is God worth it? Why don't I miss out? Am not I missing out? Is this satisfying? Isn't this a, just a trudge? At the start of 2020 this year, the start of the year, so you reflect on the year ahead, you might know be feeling like that. Is it still worth it following Jesus? Am I missing out? Isn't this like a burden, a duty, and I can't? I don't, I'll never look up to God's expectations. You might be sitting here, and you might have been here for a while, even questioning whether God's worth it. Whether you're assessing whether Jesus is worth going in for, why don't I miss out? This is what Asaph was wrestling with. This is what his worship leader was wrestling with. Was feeling, until he looked up and got perspective and saw eternity he saw the bigger picture and realized he doesn't live for just the now, but forever. And as Asaph understands perspective and he looks up and he sees what the, the, the bigger picture is, he then relates it to a personal relational truth that comes in finding his satisfaction in God. And I want to read these truths to you. And I want you to try and own these and listen to what he says here. I think there's some beautiful truths that, are, that, that you can have being a follower of Jesus. And I think this is where the satisfaction kicks in. Look at Genesis 23 and 28 to 28. It says this. He says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. This is Asa, speaking to God. You guide me with your counsel, and after you receive me in the glory, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire, but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. You know, Asaph has just described himself as a brute beast before God. As he looked sideways and envied and was angry at God, he was embittered, he said. But sentence 23, he gets clarity and he says, but I am continually with you and you hold me by the right hand. I love that even though Asaph was angry at God, God was still near him and God still had him by the right hand. God was still had him and said, i still got you. And I love this relational anger. I love this image that it gives of, of God holding and guiding Asaph just recently, as I said, we were away this last week and we were camping and um, my kids love the beach and my youngest one, Sav, she loves swimming and she loves going out past where the waves break. And she always says to me, Dad, could we go out the back, past where the waves can't break? I said, Sav, we can, but you can't stand there. And there's a lot of dangerous currents and rips. She said, it'd be fine. I said, okay, as long as we go out, you've got to hold my hand the whole time. And so we go out through the waves and I have her by the hand. And, and she can't stand, so I've got to try and guide her through the currents. And under, we go under the waves, and we we're going under the waves, and we we're holding hands, and we go under the waves, and I pull her back up, up, up as I, I could stand up, and she would come up under the waves, and I hold her up, head above water, as I held her by the hand. And she knew she was safe, because I had her by the hand. That she wouldn't let go, and I wouldn't let go of her, and she was safe, and she could feel my presence, and she need not worry, because I had her. I had hold of her, and I was not letting go you get this same beautiful imagery with Asaph and God. That God has Asaph by the hand. And he's holding on. And as Asaph enters God's presence, he gets perspective. He knows that God is near. He's close and he says God holds his hand like a child. And God is guiding Asaph. He's counseling him through the ups and downs of life. And he will not let go. Even though Asaph wants to run, God's got him. And he's going to hold him. And there's nothing, Asaph Asaph said, there's nothing better than being near this God who is personal, who is close, who is relational, who is intimate, who is all satisfying. And this is what Asaph now is experiencing of God. As he gets perspective and knows what is happening in eternity, that God is near. And it's this beautiful picture of closeness. And you can picture of a father holding a small child. That's what it's like with us in God. Guiding, taking care through the ups and downs of life. And Asaph gets this, and so in Psalm 10, so in 25, he can exclaim, Whom have I in heaven but you? He can now say, Earth, looking sideways, has nothing I desire but you. He's announcing who else do I need? If you are all you are the all satisfying one. You are, the, you are the good father. I am satisfied in you, and I don't need anything else. I don't need envy. I don't need to look at what the world has. I've got you, I've got everything. Earth has nothing I desire. And we see here straight away the antidote to envying is to look up. And to know what we have in God, the satisfying one. And to experience his closeness, his nearness, and his love. And the psalm tells you if you have God, you have everything. He's the one who sustains, in 26. Asaph says, My heart, my flesh, and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart, my portion forever. He's saying, God, I know I'm going to stumble, I know I'm going to fall, but that's okay because you're my strength. You are the one who will carry me, you are the one who is near. We read here, once you are God's child, he will never let you go. He'll be close forever. He will sustain. He will lead. And we need not fear. And this is the all-satisfying God. And Asaph experiences this and knows this. And so he says in sentence 28, it is good to be near God. You see this huge turnaround from him being angry and embittered and looking sideways and wanting and saying, "No, no, 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 now I understand. It is good to be near God. He's the all-satisfying one. And as I look to him, as I know what I have in him, the things of this world will go strangely dim in light of of his glory and grace. And because of now his newfound perspective, he looks forward. In verse 24 he says, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you receive me into glory. I look forward to that day of glory. He looks forward to experiencing God's all-satisfying nature forever. He knows that Earth, no matter what it can offer him or not, has nothing in comparison to what he has in God right now. And no matter what happens in life, that God is his strength, will hold on to him, and He will lead him into glory. And he says there, "Because of this, I will tell others of the satisfaction I have in you. I will tell others of your deeds," he says. He's so convinced of this experience he has in God. He says, I want to exclaim it to everybody else around me so they can share with what I've got and experience what I have. You know, if you've been here at all, uh, uh, at any time here at City Light, you would know, as Kez was saying before, that we are on about seeing more and stronger disciples of Jesus. And over time, I've realized how closely linked those two things are. We're a church that's on about seeing people come to know Jesus. We planted City Light seven years ago not to simply just to gather more Christians together, but we want to be a light to our city. We want to shine the light of Jesus to the world that needs to know that. Being on mission, telling others about him, being his light in this world. And I think Psalm 73 shows us how to do that. As we grow stronger, as we experience God and his love and know that, out of that we will want to share and invite others into the experience of God that we have. They fit together more and stronger. So I truly believe we will not commend what we do not cherish. We will not commend what we do not cherish. I know that's, that's true for my own soul. So I want to encourage you for the sake of your own joy and for the sake of the city, those around you, we need to know and experience and enjoy all that we have in God. You know, in life we are always looking somewhere for answers, either either sideways to others or down to ourselves or or whatever it is. But this psalm is saying we need to look up, up towards God and know that there is joy and satisfaction found in Him and know what we have in and through Jesus and His death and resurrection for us. And I, I want to encourage you as we start this year whether you've been a follower of Jesus for years, or whether it's just begun for you or for whatever it is, that do not let the, the gospel of Jesus, do not let Jesus' death and resurrection, that God's unconditional love for you, simply become a series of truths or propositions that you can just spur out off the top of your head. Jesus died for me and gone to heaven. Heard it before, great. Thanks, Gab. Good sermon. This is true, but it's so much more. And you see this expressed in Asaph. He starts with the truth. He knows it. He gets it. And then he experiences it. You humble it by the right hand. You're with me. I'm loved. You have better place me in glory. I can trust you in my in control. It's shapes of how he experiences life. He can say that earth has nothing I desire but you. I wonder if you can say that. It is good to be near God. Can you say that? We can say it. Of course we can say it because we're followers of Jesus and we know it. But do you believe that? And does your life show that? We have more than Asaph. Think about this. Asaph lived before Jesus. He didn't see the cross. He didn't see God becoming flesh. He didn't see God becoming human. He didn't see the the, the God of the universe die on a cross for us and rise again to new life. He didn't see any of that. We've seen that. We know that. We've been saved, redeemed, forgiven, loved by grace, grace alone. We've been brought into a relationship with our Creator. It's a relationship. It's not just a bunch of truths. It's a relationship your faith, your walk with Jesus, whatever you want to call it, it's a relationship. At the start of 2020, I want you to hear this because it changes so much. I want you to encourage you to know what it means to have a relationship with your Creator and experience that. Jesus died to bring you into a relationship. I want to encourage you to experience the blessing of that. How do you do that? I want to say this. Spend time with God. It's, I think the Christian life is not complicated, it's just hard to do. Spending time with Him. I was talking to a guy for church this morning, and he said to me, um, I've heard you say that to so many times. I'm like, yeah, thanks, man. And, uh,. <laughs> And he always, on that like, one thing, I go, I'm one sermon in me. Anyway, and he was just saying, it, it finally resonated with me because he was, I want to get him to share here soon, but he said for him it finally clicked that he's just got to spend time with God. This guy's been a Christian for 10, 15 years. He's saying to me, I finally get it. I've just got to spend time with God. I can't rush it. I've have a, I have got a relationship. I'm like, yeah, finally, great. How do you ever us to see that? Anyway, we're going to talk about that, but... It's a relationship. It's like it's like me marrying marrying Katie, right? Like we dated for a number of years, and we we decided I decided I really liked her. I want to spend most of my life with her. I love her, and I want to enjoy being together forever. And so we get married, and we're now in a relationship. We're in a covenant relationship, bound by God together. Now we can choose to get to know each other more or not in that marriage. I can spend time with her, listen to her, talk with her, waste time with her, learn from her, experience the blessing of being in a relationship with her, enjoy her as a married couple, because we have a relationship. Or I can choose not to. I can choose to not talk to her very much, say hi to her once a week, um, you know, um, maybe have a coffee with her once every three months, not talk a lot. I'm still in a relationship, I'm in a covenant relationship with her. But I'm not experiencing the blessing of being in a relationship with her. And I think often we treat God the same way. I want to say to you that where joy and satisfaction is found and experienced is, is knowing your God. You're made for this. This is, this is what you're made for to spend time with your Creator. You think of heaven, what makes heaven heaven? God's there. And you're with Him face to face being known fully, knowing Him fully. And we can experience that now, not its fullness, but in some way we can experience that now by spending time with Him, making it a priority. It takes making it a priority. Experiencing the joy-giving relationship that He has been purchased for you through the blood of Jesus. I want to say meet with Him, listen to Him, talk with Him, spend time with Him, waste time with Him. Experiencing the blessing of being known by your Creator. I want encourage you to renew your relationship with God this year. Talk to people in your MC about how you might want to make a plan to read the Bible together. Before me, the guys in my MC, we read a psalm a day, and then we do WhatsApp and post what we've learned each day together. Make a plan how to meet with your God. Make it a goal to say along with Asaph this, Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Make that your goal this year To be able to save that and believe that. Make it a goal to look up and see and experience the daily all satisfying goal. Because that is where your satisfaction is going to be found. I'm going to pray for us. Our great God, we want to thank you for, for the Mister Asaph. And for his honesty and vulnerabilities, he writes this psalm that we often feel and resonate with. Lord, you want to forgive us as we often find ourselves searching for satisfaction in good things that you've created, but we often make them God things that are there not. And so, Lord, we want to pray that we would repent of this Thank you that you are merciful and kind and no matter how many times we fall and and stuff up that you are there again to pick us up and to remind us of your grace and your kindness. Thank you so much that our our relationship with you is not built upon our efforts nor nor uh, nor upon how we're feeling towards you but it is built upon Jesus and his death and resurrection for us in our place. We pray, Lord, that we want to not just leave it there, that we want to go and experience the blessing of being in a relationship with you. That we would experience the, the satisfaction that comes from being known and loved by you. And that would just shape our days, our lives, how we view ourselves, the world, everything else around us. We want to thank you so much that you're a God who loves us deeply. We want to pray, Lord, that this year we would know more personally what it, means to be, what it means to be loved by you. We throw those words out so flippantly. We want to pray, Lord, that that word, loved by you, would just go deep. We want to pray, as it says in Ephesians 3, that we would grasp how wide, how deep, how high, how long is the love of God in Christ Jesus for his people. We want to pray that you, Holy Spirit, would take these truths and make them go deep. For those of us who are still searching, who are still not sure, we're on the fence. We want to pray, Lord, that You would open our eyes and give us perspective. That You are a God who loves, who has saved us. Lord, I beg for us as a church that You would just bring a renewal, a revival in our hearts and, and our and our passion for You and Your name. We know that out of this, we cannot, do, we cannot reach our city. We cannot reach our world unless we are satisfied in you. We will not commend what you do not cherish. So Lord, do a deep work in our hearts, we ask this year. Help us to start tomorrow. To each day is a new day. Help us to begin again. Help us to do it together as a church. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.